we are going to be in Luke's gospel this morning. Uh, Luke chapter 9, verses 57 to 62. That's going to be the text. If you need a Bible, raise your hand and uh, we'll get one to you. If you don't own one, that is our gift to you. But Matthew, Mark, Luke chapter 9, verse 57 is where we're going to begin. Let me read, pray, and dive in. Jesus doesn't hold any punches here, so just uh, I'm just warning you. <laughs> As they were going along the road, someone said to him, to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Let's pray. God, let there be no mistake as we open your scriptures today. No one in this room needs to hear from me. Everyone in this room, myself included, needs to hear from you. God, so we pray, we plead with you, we beg, would you come and in love, confront us even like you confronted these men. We're prone to think it harsh. We're prone to think it uncaring. But I see what you're doing. I pray we'll see what you're doing here. You're calling men into the freedom of relationship with the Son of God. The hope of heaven and treasure that no moth can get at, no rust can corrupt, no thief can steal. You're trying to call us away from shifting sand, build our house on a rock. I know there are people in this room here today that feel like they're on shifting sand. God, put us on the rock. I pray you'd use this text and this Sermon to do it. In Jesus' name, I ask these things. Amen. Um, what we have in our text here this morning is, in my estimation, a really further kind of fleshing out of those verses we dealt with back in uh, verses 23 to 25 of the same chapter. So if you have your Bibles open, I encourage you to have them open. Lift your eyes up to verse 23. 
Because I, I think what we have in our text today is just fleshing out what we saw there. Let me read this again to you. Verse 23, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? And we might have read those words back at the time and even now and thought, okay, all well and good. Take up your cross daily and follow him. Sounds a little hard, but what really does that mean? What does that actually look like? One of the things I have found is that until things actually start to be fleshed out, until we start to see how these commands like that one to take up your cross daily and follow him actually touch the details of our everyday lives, those commands kind of lose their teeth. We can kind of wiggle out of them and think we're doing fine with them. So some of us might say, gosh, what does he mean when he says, uh, take up your cross and follow me? Well, am I doing that? I, I suppose maybe I am. I mean, after all, I call myself a Christian. Uh, when the pastor asked people to come up to the altar, I came when he said with everyone's eyes closed, you know, if you want to make that decision for Christ, raise your hand. I raised my hand. I said the prayer. I go to church on Sunday, so yeah, I suppose I'm taking up my cross and I'm following Jesus. But our text this morning is going to test that logic a little bit. It shows us that this call goes a little deeper than just a few things we do or say. It claims everything about us. It is a full-on giving of my entire heart, my entire life to him. So that call, as mysterious or perhaps confusing as it seems, actually touches every detail at every moment. And that's what we're going to start to see here in our text. There are three men, three potential disciples here that Jesus encounters. Each man presents us with a particular problem. At the heart level, when it comes to being a disciple of Christ, there's a particular problem each man, uh, each man here will present us with. I'll identify them for you. But then to each problem, Jesus will in fact issue a call. He will address that problem and call them out of it into life. So what we're going to do this morning really is look at each one of these encounters between Jesus and these men one by one. But before we do that, it seemed important for me to make at least one note up front. And that is this. I wonder if you notice, but the way Luke records this narrative for us, um, there is something that can be drawn out. Uh, there is an ambiguity in this story. Uh, in these scenes, we have, so when Jesus was calling the disciples, the apostles, you, you saw their names, you knew their stories, you saw how they responded. They left their nets and their dad and their boat and they walked and they followed him or whatever. Whatever. 
You saw all of that. In these scenes, these three scenes, you don't see anything. You don't know where they came from. You don't know their names. You don't know their stories. And you don't even know how they respond to these things that Jesus says, these hard words. that he gives. And you'd be wondering, like, man, how are they? What are they going to say to that? You don't even know. We don't know. It seems to me that there's kind of this strategic, intentional ambiguity in our text so that you and I would not be distracted by someone else's story. How did those guys respond? Who were they? What were they all about? But would rather instead be invited to bring our own stories into this text. In other words, instead of saying, how did they respond? We're left asking, how would I respond? Instead of asking, man, what, what, what would they have said? We're left saying, what am I going to say? What am I going to do in response to these words? I think that's part of what this uh, narrative and why it's recorded this way for us is inviting us to do. We're not just watching, man, Jesus, that dude was tough. Look at him with those guys. Now, we're, 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 we're uh, supposed to be confronted by the living Christ here this morning ourselves. As well. So let me now jump into these encounters here one by one. Uh, with encounter number one there in verses 57 to 58, we are presented with the problem that I would describe as uncalculated enthusiasm. Uncalculated enthusiasm. I'll show you what I mean, but let's kind of dive into those two verses. Verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. You hear that? I mean, this guy was, it seems, ready. I will follow you wherever you go. On the surface of it, we would think, man, this is great news. I mean, any one of us would see someone like that and go, yes, sign him up. This sounds good. Add another one to the number. I mean, this seems like a model disciple, right? I will go with you wherever you go. I'll follow you wherever you go. So many of us struggle to even say that, right? We say, I'll follow you here. I'll follow you if you go there. But if you go, uh -uh, uh-uh, I'm not touching that. Suffering trials. Letting go of my pet sin. No, I'm not going there. So go, this is a model disciple, right? Jesus ought to be leaping for joy, but he doesn't. He's too smart for that. He sees the heart. He sees this, this brother's heart. He knows he's dealing here with the type of soil that he spoke of back in Luke chapter 8. Do you remember the parable of the, the sower? The soil types that Jesus was talking about. And there's this one soil type, right, where uh, it's kind of shallow. There's seems like you got good soil, but then the rock is just kind of right there. There's just this rock. And the roots have nowhere to go. And Jesus in that parable says, okay, listen, I'm going to come out. I'm going to scatter the seed of the gospel. You want to know what happens in this soil type? When the seed of the gospel is sown, they, this is verse 13, Luke 8, they receive it with joy. Don't miss this. There's joy, there's energy, there's zeal. Woo! 
That worship set was amazing. That message was awesome, Pastor. Feels so good. They receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, fall away. Joy, joy, when the sun is shining. When stuff goes bad, stuff goes wrong. I never wanted Jesus anyways. He's not here for me. So there is initial enthusiasm here, but it is uncalculated. Uh, perhaps this man, uh, we are left to assume, has seen a lot of Jesus up to this point. I mean, he's probably seen the miracles, the power, heard the teaching, the wisdom, watched the crowds following behind him and thought, I want to be a part of this. This is exciting. This is kind of the winning team. Sign me up for this. In other words, he's willing to say, I will follow you wherever you go because he thinks he has an idea in his mind about where Jesus is in fact going to a throne, to a place of prestige and power. I'll follow you wherever you go because I can see all the signs are leading there. I want to go there too. He has enthusiasm, but he has no idea what following Jesus will actually cost him. He has no idea what this is going to entail to take up his cross daily and follow him. He shoots up with joy when he thinks it's all good, but then when it gets hard, he's going to fall away. And so Jesus, in love, because he loves this, but the same thing he does with the rich young ruler, remember that? He says he looks at the rich young ruler because he loved him. He said, sell everything you have and then you can come. He knew where the rich young ruler's heart was. And he knows where this brother's heart is. And he knows where our heart is. And so he pushes back on this guy. He doesn't just say, great, I'm after the numbers. Let me make it easier to get people into my church, even if I have to water down doctrine or pass out donuts or give, you know, do a song and dance. He cares about their hearts, that they be ready for the trials that are coming. And so he pushes Back on this enthusiasm in love. Verse 58. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. I mean, that just sounds almost mean, doesn't it? He basically said, you really want to follow me? You realize what my life, you realize, don't you, that we just left the Samaritan village that saw who I was and where I'm going and said, there's no place for you here. We're homeless, brother. He's not trying to douse this, this, this man's enthusiasm. He's not trying to quench this man's spirit, but he is trying to slow him down so that he might actually count the cost. There are a number of times we'll see this happen in Luke's gospel. One in particular, dealing with counting the cost. But he's doing that here with this man. And he tells him, in essence, that my situation while on the earth, hear this, is going to be worse. It's worse than beast or bird. 
The foxes have holes. They got a place to stay. The birds, they got nests. But Jesus comes down as a sojourner, as a stranger, as an exile, as a homeless man. I have nowhere to lay my head. Wasn't that the meaning of the manger in Bethlehem? It's not like it started off well for Jesus and and, and over time kind of degraded and got worse. It was bad from day one. This was the case from day one. Is there any room in the end? No, there's not. Not among mankind. No place for you. Okay, fine, among the animals, but he doesn't even really belong there either, does he? No. So the owner of everything gives up everything to gain us. And all of this, of course, culminates in, in the uh, death on the cross. The Messiah's homelessness, you could say, reaches its climax there. It's as if all humanity was saying to him in violent protest, get off of my land. That's one way to read the cross. Get off of my land, we said to the owner of everything. Get out of my world, we said to the creator of the world. Foxes have holes, birds have nests. Son of man has nowhere to lay his head. I'm not so much going to a cross, or I'm sorry, I'm not so much going to a throne first, brother. I'm going to a cross. You ready to follow me even there? Because all this joy, when you see me dead hanging on a tree, you're going to fall away if we don't settle this now. What a question for us to consider here in Silicon Valley, where it seems to me the um, world is at our fingertips, right? Um kind of the apex of the modern world here, right outside our front door. And Jesus comes into this place and would say, yeah, that's where I'm going. That's what it means to follow me. Are you still willing? Um, I was uh, driving home <laughs> with my family. Oh, this was a while ago. I still remember um, we were driving home from uh, Megan's parents' house in Folsom. We were coming down the 87. And uh, on the road up ahead was a Tesla, right? Which I assume anywhere else in the country, world, whatever, this would probably be like a, a pretty big deal. Like, oh, wow, Tesla, wow. Drive up, you take a picture of it, or if you see it parked, you want to take a picture of yourself posing by it or whatever. But here... In Bay Area, it's just another Tesla, right? Oh, yeah, there's another one. Um, there's a guy down my street who has two, parked out in front, like, hey, I don't care if you ding it or whatever, it's just a Tesla. But um, as we drove up closer to this car, I noticed he had one of those personalized license plates. And um, the letters on the license plate were K-E-V-S-L-A. Kevsla. You can probably see where I'm going with this. I assume, I, I don't know, it's just conjecture, but I assume the guy's name was Kevin. Right? 
And so what a cute, wonderful way to kind of pair your identity with your possession here, your most beloved treasure, uh, than to say, hey, listen, Kevin, Tesla, Kevsla, right? Sounds good. Sounds cute. But I think you maybe know where I'm going with this. It actually is this profound picture of what we are prone to do with our stuff. In other words, we are prone to merge our names, our identities, who we are with what we have, what we can buy, what we own. We spend all our time, especially right here, trying to accumulate that because when we get it, we think we'll get status or we think we'll have arrived. or we'll... We spend, in other words, all of our time trying to make our home in this world. I, I, I want to be comfortable here. I want to have security here. We try with all our might to build that home up here on sand. And so Jesus is going to roll up on guys like this, guys like us, and say, would you follow me? Yeah, okay. The tech execs, let them have their Teslas. The average man, okay, like myself, you can have a Honda, fine. It's a nice Honda. (laughs) But the Son of Man, what he would say, the Son of Man doesn't even have a bike. He gets from point A to point B by walking along the road with his thumb up. That's put into modern context. Put into Silicon Valley. Who wants to follow that guy? I do. Listen, this doesn't mean necessarily that you shouldn't have a car. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't have a bed to your name. But it does mean this. We've left it all for him. We let go of the the rat race and the chasing after stuff, accumulation of goods and the building of a home for ourselves here. We say, you know what, God? Seek first your kingdom. The rest will be added. What I need, you'll give it to me. And if you don't, you'll get me through to glory. I know that. What did Jesus say? I go to heaven to prepare a place for you. That's where our home is. So that when the trial comes, when suffering comes, when you have to, you're faced with the decision. It's not just persecution that we're talking about, like other people that hate us. But if you're going to make decisions for Christ to turn from sin, like say all your other buddies are are, are cutting corners at work to get this or that for their families and they can do all these vacations. That hurts. That's a decision between my home here or my home with Christ. That's painful. That's trial. And he said, no, I'm going that way. Or if stuff comes, if Jesus comes and lays claim on things in your life, the trials, take it away. Does it hurt? Absolutely. Do you cry? You bet. But does it crush you? No, because it doesn't get at you fundamentally. Your identity isn't here. It's not merged with your stuff. His name is on you. Your name is on him. It's in his book. 
the one you are following, you know what you're getting into. Okay, so Jesus pushes back on his brother, slows him down a little bit, gets him to really count the cost, and he's doing that with us. Now, second encounter uh, there in verses 59 to 60, uh, and it's here that we are presented with yet another problem, and then yet another call from Jesus addressing that problem. The problem now, it seems, is what I might describe as principled postponement. Principled postponement. Um, Before I flesh this out further, first thing I want us to realize is that this man is actually quite opposite from the one we just saw. So the one we just saw, right, is eager and zealous to follow. And so Jesus has to kind of hold up, slow him down. Now, this second man seems to be shuffling his feet and hesitating. And Jesus is going to now try to actually speed him up. Let's go. You've seen enough. What's the decision going to be? So here's the person who hears and sees and kind of likes all that he sees, but is still postponing full commitment, still shuffling his, his feet. Therefore, Jesus doesn't wait for this man to come to him. Instead, Jesus goes after this man. And there in verse 59, we see it. Follow me. Guy before, I'll follow you anywhere. This guy, Jesus has to go to him. Are you going to follow me or not? Are you in this or not? Now, it is in the response of this man here that we start to see what I mean by principled postponement. Look, uh, verse 59, second part. This man responds to Jesus' call. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Seems reasonable enough. That's why I call this principled. Because it seems on the face of it, it's a decent request. It's a man of principle here. To care for your father and uh, to bury your loved ones uh, in Judaism, especially at this time, was a very important responsibility. It's not like this guy is saying, Jesus, um, can I, I, listen, I still wanted a little bit of the world. You know, I still wanted to kind of sleep around a bit. I wanted to try to accumulate some wealth. I wanted all that this world has to give me. And then I'll, I'll get around to following you. That guy, we know. Okay, listen, that's just, he's just postponing. This guy's principled. I, can I, can I go bury my dad and then I'll get to this? Now, commentators, um, go different directions at this point uh, in terms of understanding what's happening here, but many conclude there really is more to the request than we first perceive. See, Jesus knows the heart. That's why we're going to see what what he says next. He knows that there's something underneath this that isn't quite so pretty. Not as pretty as it seems. And when we look at it historically, actually, we start to understand a little bit more. So one of the things that you need to understand is so when we first read this, we think, oh, the guy's dad just died. And he just simply wants to go do a quick burial. And then he's ready to follow Jesus. We think that sounds reasonable enough. But that's not how this would have worked. 
Because chances are, if the guy's dad had just died, at least in Judaism, when you are addressing the things and dealing with the dead, you become unclean. You're not out and about talking to rabbis or hanging out in crowds, except for that funeral procession and all the stuff that is entailed in that. So the chances are, this guy's dad isn't dead yet. At least that's one possibility. And instead, what we have is him saying, um, my dad is dying. And we're not quite sure how long he has. But you know as well as I do, Rabbi, that this is very important for me as a son to do for him. So I'll follow you when that's done. Or there's another um uh, more scholars that kind of look at what was happening there around Israel in Judaism at this time. They say, actually, one of the things that uh, people would do is they would first bury their loved one. And then as the flesh kind of rotted off the bones, they would actually then a year later or so take up the bones and put it in a little ossuary box and, and put it into the wall of the, the family tomb. One way or another, what we're seeing is it's probably not this immediate, let me go and come back. It's this extended, who knows how long period of time, and then I'll get around to it. But this is a great thing. Who are you to tell me I shouldn't be doing this? It's principled postponement. Whatever the case, the man is not ready to follow. But behind the smokescreen of principle. He's postponing, shuffling his feet. Um, I listened actually to a sermon that Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones gave on this text. And at this point, he used this example. I uh, gave this illustration of St. Augustine, a guy from church history, pretty prominent figure, obviously. Um, and I, I love the illustration they used. I thought it was so fitting. So I had read Augustine's Confessions. I didn't remember this. But Augustine was a guy given over to lust. Given over. He would just openly say, man, I was addicted to sex and all this stuff. And at one point in his life, he gets confronted with the truths of Christ. Someone is talking to him about these things. He's hearing and he's going, wow, this sounds intriguing. I should look more into this. I'm kind of seeing the truth of this. Maybe I should turn from these things to this Jesus. But I don't know, I kind of like this stuff still a lot. And so he prayed this prayer and he records it in his journals here. It went like this. Grant me chastity. God, grant me chastity and self-control. But please, not yet. Do you hear that? How many in this room are in that? Not yet. Right now. Oh, I hear what I should be doing. I know. But not yet. The crazy thing, even Augustine hides behind principle when he goes on to explain. He doesn't just say, I wanted sex. That's what I said. No, instead he kept saying, 
I need to do more research. I need to look more into the claims of Christ before I can really make a decision. I'm an enlightened man. I need to give my mind to this, and then maybe I can give my heart to it as well. He said, but all along I knew, I knew that Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life. I just, not yet. He even says, my sin was such a burden to me. And yet still he wanted it. And he was hearing stories of men that were freed by Christ from it. And he wanted that. Just not yet. I wonder if you have ever been in this sort of, pla- this sort of place, or maybe you're here now, where you like the teachings, maybe kind of following at a safe distance. You like the fellowship. You like the music. You like some of the stuff that goes on with Christianity, but you're still shuffling your feet. You're still postponing. I got other responsibilities, other good things. I need to read more books. It's into this sort of thing that Jesus speaks next. Look at the call that he issues to this man in our text there in verse 60. And Jesus said to him, seeing his heart again, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. It's the call, if I may put it bluntly, to, you see it there in your handout, to commit already. I actually, for some reason, the, the wording there, came from, uh, I was thinking of Elf. Remember that movie, the Christmas movie? Yeah, we watch it every year, but uh, where that little boy is like reading from Santa's list on the, new, you know, on the news and he comes to the, the news anchor's name and he says, okay, what's your name? I'm going to help you believe. And he reads what she wants for Christmas and he says, Charlotte Denon wants a Tiffany engagement ring and for her boyfriend to stop dragging your feet and commit already. I don't know why that came to my mind at this point, but that's it, isn't it? Isn't that it? Where we kind of have this kind of boyfriend relationship with Jesus, like this kind of thing. Like, I like the benefits. I like some of the stuff that gives me the warm, tingly feeling, the nice people, the good songs, whatever. But I don't want to commit. I'm scared of what that will change about my lifestyle. I'm scared about what that will mean for me. So let me have a little bit, but not yet. And Jesus' call comes, commit already. There's this whole, there's this whole emphasis throughout the entire scriptures about the importance of the present moment. That we are in flux. We are either softening to God or we are hardening, but we are not remaining neutral. So if, this is why Hebrews 3, and I think he also quotes it later in 4, but he he says, today, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. You have a choice when God confronts you, when you hear Jesus speaking to you, when you see these things, you are either softening or hardening in that moment. You are not remaining neutral. As if you can postpone and postpone, and at the last second, call an audible, call in Jesus, and you're good. It's not how this works. Your heart will be so hard, perhaps, by that point, you won't even care anymore. Right? This is today. 
Brother, you've been following long enough. Sister, you've been following long enough. If you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Commit already. For some of us, that might look like actually deciding to lay your life down and follow Jesus. Maybe it is. I've just been kind of searching, thinking. And says, listen, you've seen enough. For others of us, it might be that there's this conviction of sin. There's just something that we know, gosh, this does not align with God's word. I know that. For a long time, I just kind of said, not yet. His call to you today is, you're going to follow. Leave the dead, bury their own dead. You make a decision for the kingdom now, before it's too late. What does he mean when he says, leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God? I can't get into it. In essence, though, what he is saying, I think, is this. If, as you say, you are truly concerned with caring for the dead. So that's this man's concern. Let me go bury my father. He says, okay, if you're concerned with the dead, how about this? Give yourself to proclaiming the only message that can awaken the dead. Bring the dead to life. Kingdom priority here. Dress the already dead, spiritually and physically. Or go and proclaim the message that might wake people up from the dead spiritually. And then their bodies follow on the last day. Physically. You tell me, if you care about the dead, what's your priority? So it just kind of gets under there in the heart and says, let's go. Let's deal with what's really there. No more smoke screens. No more principled postponement. Now, third encounter, and obviously, as is usually the case with me, I have to go faster on the third point. It always gets... <laughs> uh, but in this case, it actually works out quite well. Uh, verses 61 to 62, really, this guy kind of merges together both problems from the first two. Kind of brings them both together for us. Um, like the first, he initiates with seeming enthusiasm. But then like the second, he hesitates. He looks back and wonders, do I really need to make a clean break with all of this? Verse 61, you see it. I will follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those at my home. Kind of brings both together, enthusiasm and reluctance. I'll follow you. But let me go say goodbye to some people, maybe throw a party. Farewell party. I love the way one commentator puts it. One cannot come to Jesus, call him Lord. As this disciple aspirant does, and then impose limits on his lordship. Do you hear that? I mean, really, do you hear that? Because we do this all the time. We can't call him Lord and then impose limits on his lordship. He either has all of us or he has none of us. There's no middle ground. The scriptures, Jesus, they don't allow it. Think about what that middle ground means. Think about it if you hold some things back. You want to know what that says? I don't trust you with this. I'll trust you with that because I don't really care so much about that. Or with heaven because that's way off over there. But not with this because that's here. And I, Let me have it. 
at saying, you're not my God. This is. He either has all of us or he has none of us. The picture that Jesus gives us here, um, when he, in there in verse 62, I, I wonder if you, you saw it. Um, he looks at this guy who I would say is struggling with the problem of divided loyalties. And he says, in essence, surrender it all. He says, Jesus, uh, Jesus says to them, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. You can't move forward and look back at the same time. And the image is simple enough. If you are truly trying to, you know, do your whole plow thing in the field and you're looking back, I mean, all I know is I'm driving on the freeway and I'm looking back trying to hit a kid or something like that is making noise and I'm going to be swerving in the lane, right? I don't actually hit my kids. I'm sorry I said that. <laughs> so if this guy's pulling, taking the plow and he's pushing, but he's also looking back, what's going to happen to the furrows? It's going to zig. It's going to zag. It's going to affect the sowing. It's going to affect the harvest. It's going to affect the fruit that comes up in this field. It's got divided loyalties. Oh, I'll go forward, but hold up. And I do have to wonder, I mean, a lot of us, myself included, we sometimes grumble about the Christian life and wonder, gosh, why am I not bearing the fruit that I hope I thought I'd be bearing. Why does it feel like my Christian life is so powerless at times? What's the deal? I, I see Acts Church and there's all this stuff going on. I look in my heart and I go, what is that? I see my behavior, the fruit I'm bearing, quote unquote, look, what is that? Well, I think that's the sort of thing Jesus is getting at here. We have these divided loyalties. We say we want this, but do we really? Is our heart really there, or is it kind of still here too? As long as that's the case, we are gonna, we're not going to strike a straight furrow. Instead, we're going to zig, zag, and the fruit we're going to bear is all mixed and mashed with thorns and weeds and maybe a little, little good stuff here or there. He's saying, no, give this to me. I'll take it. You turn around. You follow me. And I'll take care of that. And we will cut that straight furrow. We will start to see fruit. We will start to see love and joy and peace and all these things, even in the midst of suffering. Now, at the end of the day, what we find is that though these words may seem tough to us, though we are prone to think Jesus perhaps is mean and uncaring here, like maybe he was in a crabby mood on this particular afternoon, kind of look at his responses, that's kind of what you feel like. I'll follow you. Will you really? Let me go bury my dead. No. You get going or not. Let me just go say goodbye to some people. If you turn around, there's no place for you here. Seems crabby, seems grumpy, seems harsh. Like maybe he, Jesus does need a pillow. He does need a bed. To get this guy a bed. He slept poorly last night. But that's not it at all when you look underneath. When you really look underneath these words and you start to understand his intent.
that he sees our hearts. You know what he's calling us into, actually? You know what he's calling these guys into? Freedom. Salvation. Life. Like I read at the beginning, if you lose your life for his sake, you actually start to find it. It's not harshness here, but love. Not roughness, but grace. I'll do this with you. Just We're about to close here. But I've been reading through Colossians, and I think it applies at this point, and I just wanted to bring it out because it's been encouraging to me. But I've been reading through Colossians in my own times with the Lord, and in the beginning of this letter, Paul is encouraged by this church. He's, he's recounting certain things about them. And one of the things he says, just to kind of sum it up for us, he says, listen, you guys have faith in Christ. And that has secured your hope in heaven. And because of that, while you are here on this earth, I'm hearing all about how much love you have. Even at pains to yourself, you are bearing the fruit of love. You're free. You have life and joy and peace, even in suffering, because your faith is in Christ and your hope is secure in heaven. You're walking unworried, unfettered, bearing great fruit. That's the sort of thing Jesus is calling these men into and us. In this text, freedom is what we often do. What we often do is try to make heaven something here, right? We make heaven something here. We want heaven now. I don't want it there. I want it now. We redefine it. Heaven is going to be my hope is that when I get a relationship or I get that house on a hill, or I get my kids to finally obey me, then I will be happy. Then that will be my heaven, as it were. And so then what happens? Well, we trust other gods, other gospels, other Christs to bring that in for us. In other words, the hope in heaven, the faith in Christ breaks down. And if, say, you were hoping in that relationship, well, what are you going to place your faith in? Well, my looks, maybe? So you're hitting up the gym, you're counting every calorie. I've got to look a certain way if I'm going to get there. Or maybe the dating app thing is, is where you're at, and I, I'm scrolling and I'm looking, and if I don't send that email or respond right away, I might lose it, I might miss it, my chance. But we're hoping in these things and we're trusting in other stuff to get it. Let me ask you, what's the fruit that comes forth from that? Anxiety? Because you're, you know it's up to you. You've got to look a certain way. You've got to say the right thing. Even if you get it, you're worried you're going to lose it. Anxiety? Jealousy? All those people that do have it and you wish you did. Bitterness, anger, resentment, because that guy was there and then he turned on you, or that girl was there and then she left you. This is the sort of thing that Jesus is calling us away from. Uproot your heart from that sort of stuff and reroot it in the one who can take care of you. Reroot it in the one who will give you what you truly need. Might not be the way you want it, the time you want it, but he loves you. 
And so what happens when that faith moves towards Christ and settles in there? And the hope is not in making my home here, but in heaven. Well, I come walk free. I don't need this stuff. Free to use it in love for you. Perhaps the best way to tie all this together is just simply to make one observation that I have not really made up to that this point, and that is um, what you see there in verse 57, the very first words of this text. Just make note of this. All three of these encounters, this, these calls that Jesus issues to these people, they happen along the road. Did you see this? As they are going along the road. In other words, Jesus is going somewhere and he's calling us to follow him, follow uh, behind him there as well. Where is he going? Well, someone raises their hand and the answer comes. We know we just read it. Luke nine up there a little earlier. He's going to Jerusalem, right? Where he will be rejected and he will suffer and he will die. Yes. And so. We should expect we will, if we are following him, we will suffer shame. We will face trial. It will be hard. It will be loss in many ways. Say goodbye to many things. There's a fellowship with him in his sufferings that we will know as we follow behind him on this road. But is that really where the road ends? No. Jesus would say it himself, I will suffer many things, I will be rejected and be killed, but on the third day, what? I will be raised. This road doesn't terminate in Jerusalem. It carries through suffering, shame, death, to glory, to eternal life, to everything your heart has ever longed for being satisfied. That's where this train lets out. In a world where there is no more sorrow, no more pain, no more tears. We have God as our inheritance. So is it going to be hard? Is it lost? Yes, but is it gain? You better believe it. He's gone before us. He's here to help us. Let's go to him now. Pray with me. God, we need your help along this road. We do not think that this is something we can bootstrap ourselves into. We believe it is a road you walk first, and then you walk again in and through us. God, would you help us to lay it all down? You may be calling right now people to let go of this or that. I don't know what it is. But I know one thing, if it's unwilling to be surrendered, it is a burden and not a blessing. It is holding them down and not setting them free. God, I pray, pursue the hearts of your children, pursue the heart of your bride in this place. Let us be surrendered fully so that we can fly with you, God. It's in your name I ask these things. Amen.